So I'm going to say something, and I do not mean it as a complaint. And it's something that you two have likely observed, if not by experience, then simply by reading the Bible. Church is hard. Church is hard. And being a Christian is hard. And the relationships that we enter when following Jesus can be hard. Conflict provides opportunity for division. Cultural backgrounds lead to misunderstandings. Long-standing burdens sometimes tempt us to despair. Another's confession, while we might be thankful, can bring things to light that deeply grieve us. While caring for some, others get overlooked, sometimes offended. Leaders can agree on the main mission but disagree on the best practice. Loved ones can stray from Jesus altogether. That's just a smattering from the New Testament letters in the book of Acts. I haven't yet mentioned the struggles that are within the churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, like love growing cold and churches compromising truth and others tolerating idolatry and others growing self-sufficient and all while Satan is making his systematic war against the saints. And yet we are the ones that Jesus calls to make disciples of all nations. We are the ones that, that Jesus tells us to overcome, to conquer, to endure. Well, how are we supposed to do that if church is hard, being a Christian is hard? When sorrowful days squelch our zeal, when sin threatens our love and unity, and when everything feels some days like it's falling apart, how will the church survive? How will we overcome? And I think verses 4 and 5 give us the answer. Grace and peace comes to us from God the Trinity. Grace and peace Come to us from God, the Trinity. That's that's the only way that you and I can make it. Verses 4 through 8, they stand as one section here. There's a a title for God in verse 4 that you also see in verse 8. Him who is and who was and who is to come. And then between those two titles, you you have this really rich salutation. It includes a greeting from the Trinity and then moves to Jesus' redeeming work and then our worship of Jesus for that work. And initially, I wanted to preach this as one section, but with no less than 12 Old Testament allusions in five verses, I figured that it would be better to slow down a little bit. We'll pick up the pace later in Revelation, but we're going to slow down. So today we're only covering verse 4 and the first half of verse 5. We're going for one and a half full verses today. So let's read them together. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, with verse 4, we encounter Revelation as a letter. Last time we were together, we talked about Revelation's genre as apocalyptic, but more so as prophecy. Well, today we encounter Revelation as a letter. And it's a letter that does not end until chapter 22, verse 21, which is the last, book of, last verse of Revelation. 
And it may not seem like it, but this greeting contributes much to reading and understanding Revelation as a whole. Okay, we learn that it's from John here. Now, some have questioned which John, but there are good reasons, both from church history and when you compare the biblical texts themselves, to see that this is John the Apostle, uh, the same author behind the fourth gospel and first to third John. And the way John uses the Old Testament in those in, in the gospel and his letters actually helps you kind of put the pieces together here in, in Revelation. But more than that, if Revelation is a letter addressed to specific churches, then to understand its message to us, we must first understand its message to them. Okay, the churches eventually get named in verse 11, but all of them belong to the first century Roman province of Asia Minor. And there's also really compelling evidence from church history like Irenaeus that puts John writing at the end of Domitian's reign. So think Roman Empire, early 90s. Okay? Not like Backstreet Boys 90s, but like way back there 90s, right? That historical context forces us to wrestle with with what the church faced under the persecution of Rome and the temptations from its culture. And sometimes John will will use imagery that overlaps with their their culture. He does it on purpose. For example, in first century Rome, you have this goddess named Roma. In statues, she looks like this strong, virtuous woman wrapped in battle garments... And sometimes she's reclining on Rome's seven hills. Well, John plays off that image in chapter 17 with a woman sitting on seven hills, but he exposes her as a prostitute, and she's drunk with the blood of the saints. It'd be like someone exposing Lady Liberty as a facade hiding this nation's idolatry. And John will play off imagery that overlaps the historical context of these churches. And so we'll kind of pick this up along the way. We can miss some things by ignoring that context. We can also go wrong by limiting Revelation's intent to that context. Notice how the letter is written to seven churches in Asia. There were not just seven churches in Asia. There were... There were others. Why seven? Well, repeatedly in Revelation, we'll find that John uses seven to signify fullness. And that's not arbitrary. It actually comes from a pattern you find in the Old Testament. Right? Think about right from the beginning. God finishes out the creation week by resting on the seventh day. Right? Or in Leviticus... Four, chapters 4 through 16, you get these instances where the, the priest has to sprinkle the blood. How many times? Seven times for a complete sacrifice. Or in Deuteronomy 28, verse 25, it uses this, this seven to describe total defeat by the enemy, right? You will, it's part of the curses, you will come against these nations and they will scatter you seven ways, meaning there will be total defeat. Fullness, completeness. So by writing to seven churches in a book where seven is this number of fullness, these churches represent the whole of God's people. Each of the seven must appropriate the whole of Revelation and not limit their hearing to the one letter that's addressed to the specific church, right, in chapters 2 and 3. You know, Smyrna doesn't get to get their letter and go, whoo, no repentance for us. No, they got six others to read, right? Because every letter ends with the Spirit speaking to the churches, plural. Each church must see itself as one with the other churches, all of whom face the onslaught of temptation, all of whom face the onslaught of persecution, and all of whom desperately depend on Jesus' victory for their own victory. 
And the same is true for us. This letter, while it came to churches that shared a common historical context in Rome, it simultaneously speaks to all churches throughout the ages. We too must hear what the Spirit is still saying to the churches. The seven represent the whole. Well, how then does God greet His church in the midst of all that they're going through? He says, grace and peace. Grace and peace. I love those words. And I I hope that you will love them more when we talk about where they come from in a few minutes. Before getting there, let's clarify, though, what both of these words are uh, mean. And we'll start with grace. You know, sometimes people think that grace is the tolerance of sin. Like, man, get off my back. Show me some grace, right? But we can't say that because here he says, grace and peace be to you. But when you read chapters 2 and 3, there's some sin Jesus be calling out in these churches. Grace, instead, has to do with God's unmerited favor towards sinners at Christ's expense. Grace is never something that can be earned or worked for, even after you're a Christian. It's God's free and extravagant generosity in Christ toward undeserving sinners. It's power to transform Sinners into saints. What about peace? People also sometimes misunderstand peace. They have a truncated view of peace. They reduce peace to the mere absence of conflict. But in Scripture, peace has more to do with the presence of God blessing the world with His perfect rule. So true peace exists only when you stand in a right relationship with your Maker who then orders all your relationships with other people under his perfect will. And for Revelation, this is where God is taking the world, isn't he? God is moving the course of history to the new Yeru Shalom. Shalom, right? The, new, the true city of peace. Now, together, these words form a special greeting. Like any other first century letter, John opens with a greeting. However, John replaces the customary greeting with the words, grace to you and peace, let's just say, from God for now. Grace to you and peace from God. It's it's amazing because this grace and peace isn't coming from John to the people. It's coming directly from God himself. And by by God giving us this, this greeting, God is welcoming us into the story of God's grace at work through Jesus by the Spirit to establish peace. Now, there are more specifics to the way that grace and peace works itself out in God's plan for the church, and it's to that we now turn as we look at the Trinity. God, the Trinity, is the fountain of this grace and peace that's now reassured for the church. John alludes first to God the Father. We have to wait until verse 6 to see his identity as Father become explicit. But in verse 4, John uses this title, From Him Who Is and Who Was and who is to come. That is a reflection on God's covenant name given in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Okay, God meets Moses in the burning bush. Right? God manifests his glory in this self-sustaining fire. And he commissions Moses to lead the people. Moses asks God, if the people say, what is his name What shall I say to them? And God replies, I am who I am. Or, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I am the one who is. Okay, the same words that John uses here. The one who is. I am the one who is. Now, some have suggested the name speaks to God's eternal existence. 
He did not come into being. God simply is. And they're not wrong about that. But in the context of Exodus 3.12, God also reassures Moses, saying, Surely I will be with you. And that was right before God said, I am who I am. I will be with you. I will be with you. I am who I am. In other words, God's covenant name means more than his existence. It also expresses that he is and will be with his people. And that becomes clearer in John's reflection on the divine name. He combines three verbal forms to emphasize God's immediate past and uh, future presence working for his people. He is the one who is, meaning I am the God who is with you now. He then moves to the one who was to emphasize his presence with his people throughout history. And then finally, we get the one who is coming to emphasize how this same God is in the process of coming to save them. And we're going to discuss that coming more when we tackle verses 7 to 8 because there's lots of Old Testament passages that refer to God as the one who is coming too. But for now, consider why John might have chosen this name from that Old Testament story. What are they going through in Exodus chapter 3? Slavery. They're suffering under tyrants. One Pharaoh ordered the murder of their sons. He feared the people were becoming too great, so he ordered the casting of the sons into the Nile River. And then under another Pharaoh, they suffer under hard labor with no power to escape. They cry to the Lord for help. He hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant, and then he acts in grace to save them. So by naming the one who is and who was, we remember that God is gracious to save when we are powerless to save ourselves. It's no accident that verse 5 then speaks of Jesus freeing us from our sins. We were powerless to save ourselves, but God in grace delivers us from that slavery. And we'll talk about that more next time. For now, consider how this name would land on the ears of a church suffering under Roman tyranny. The God who was. The God who worked in the past to deliver his people. The God who worked in Jesus to meet their greatest need. Their freedom from sin. He is the God who is still with you in the present. He is the God who is. God is always with his people throughout history, always acting for their good. He is, the un, he is unchanging in the way he saves. His past actions give us confidence about who he is in the present. And right now, when church is hard, and when relationships are messy, and when the mission is taxing, and when corrupt leaders abuse their power to destroy children, when falsehoods abound and confuse, God is with his people. He is with you now, church. He's going to be with you at the members meeting today. He's going to be with you throughout the week and all of your tomorrows. He is also in the process of coming to save you at the end of all things. He will make good on his word. That's what this, the grand story of his saving purpose has proven. He is, he was, and he is coming. So it's grace to you and peace from this God who's been working for his people like this throughout history. That's grace from the Father. Let's look now at grace from God's, from God the Spirit. John adds, And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. See, I told you, Ben, I don't have to make this weird. So on the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now that's an unusual way to state things. I mean, since the third person of the Trinity is normally referred to elsewhere in Scripture as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth or just simply the Spirit, some have suggested, well, these seven spirits must be angels. In chapter 8, verse 2, John describes seven angels also being before God's throne. 
Uh, Psalm 104 refers to angels as flames of fire. And in, and in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, John identifies the seven spirits as these seven torches of fire. So perhaps these are seven angels. But I think a stronger case can be made for seeing the seven spirits as referring to the Holy Spirit. For starters, it seems strange to identify angels as the source of grace and peace when throughout the New Testament, God is that source. Also, in chapter 4, verse 5, John does identify the seven spirits as seven burning torches before God's throne. But when we also add chapter 5, verse 6, you want to turn there, I think a different Old Testament context enters the picture that points to the Spirit. Okay, chapter 5, verse 6 says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, as Jesus, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So with chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 6, John identifies the seven spirits as seven torches and also seven eyes sent into all the earth. There is only one place in the Old Testament where both of those images occur, and it is Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. God gives Zechariah a vision of a lampstand. And we, if you just let's hit pause for a minute and think back to the lampstand in the tabernacle. Right? You might know it as the menorah. The, the big candle with seven flames. Seven torches. Okay? And uh, that lampstand, it stood just outside the veil. And it, it illuminated... The holy place, all the way from the entrance to the Holy of Holies. All right? We could even say that those seven lamps, those seven torches, burned before God's throne. Where was God enthroned? In the Holy of Holies, wasn't he? Above the cherubim, above the mercy seat. And so... We're kind of going back to Hebrews here that the earthly tabernacle served as a copy of the heavenly things. Okay, so you've got these seven lamps burning before God's throne. Now we're fast-forwarding to Zechariah, hit play. Zechariah gets a vision of an even greater lampstand. Okay, it burns much brighter with seven flames, and it never runs out. There's a never-ending supply of oil that keeps the seven lamps burning. And Zechariah asks the angel, what are these? (laughs) Right? I see lamps and two olive trees. What the heck is going on here? And the uh, angel responds to him first... In verse 6, not, not as directly, but he says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so Zechariah is looking at these seven torches burning. What are these? And the angel first says indirectly, These, he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So it seems like these Flames, these seven flames, have something to do with God's Spirit. And then later in verse 10 of Zechariah 4, he answers Zechariah more directly, and he says, These seven, that is the seven flames, are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth, which is the same imagery John used in Revelation 5 6. And so I think John is following the progression in Zechariah's vision. He identifies the seven eyes with what the seven flames on the lampstand represent, namely God's 
mighty presence by the Holy Spirit. Also, if seven signifies fullness, then the seven spirits refer to the fullness of the Spirit's presence to accomplish God's purpose. Another parenthesis, who has the fullness of the Spirit in John's Gospel? Who has the Spirit without measure? It is Jesus, right? We saw that in Revelation 5, 6. Close parenthesis, back to Revelation. What we see here is not only does the Spirit have all knowledge, seven eyes, He's everywhere present. The seven flames correspond to the seven churches he just mentioned, which are also called lampstands later on. And that also fits Acts chapter 2, when Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on the church, and it says there were divided tongues as of fire resting on the people. In other words, the churches, as lampstands, are where the Spirit burns. Y'all with me? All right. Good. Weirdness resolved, Ben. Maybe. All right. Why refer to the Holy Spirit this way? Why not just say, from the Spirit? Why from seven spirits? Because when this word about the Spirit came, God's people in Zechariah's day were walking through hardships much like the church in John's day and much like the church in our day. They're having all kinds of struggles. Exile was now behind them. They returned from exile and... and, uh, They return to the land and they expect the kingdom to come and it doesn't come and Jerusalem is still in ruins. Foreign armies are threatening them and all they have to show is this like hunk of concrete that's smaller than Solomon's temple was. And what is that in comparison to these other greater, more powerful nations? They've got these mountain-like obstacles standing in the way of accomplishing the Lord's work. Things are hard. Life is messy. And they're asking the same questions that you ask. How is this possible? How are we going to make it? How will the kingdom come? That's why Zechariah says, do you despise the day of small things? They're wrestling with fears about how certain obstacles can be overcome. Doubts about whether God's way is the best way. You ever feel that way? Like you're walking in step with the Spirit. You're doing what God's Word says. You're parenting all the right ways. And the results aren't happening. And so you're tempted to be like, forget this. It's not working my way. Or you might even get cynical about whether your small contribution makes any difference. Like, you, you did your thing, nothing happened, so you throw up your hands and you walk away like, what's the point? That's what they're dealing with. <laughs> That's what the God's people are dealing with in Zechariah's day. That's what we're dealing with, Right? And it's in the midst of these struggles that Zechariah's word about the Spirit comes, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. My Spirit will accomplish my word. My Spirit will build my kingdom. My Spirit will triumph. My Spirit will, can, can make this small contribution of yours and multiply the fruit. God's Spirit will see to it that God's promises are fulfilled. No obstacle against His kingdom is too great. Everything necessary to complete God's will, God's Spirit will provide it. God's purpose would succeed in the building of His kingdom because of His Spirit. And John is saying that that same Spirit is present in the churches today. That same sevenfold Spirit is everywhere present to build God's kingdom today. 
every grace we need to accomplish God's purpose. God's Spirit will provide. You may be looking at mountain-like obstacles right now. But you have to remember that they are no match for God's Spirit. He can bring change. He can empower. He will work to complete God's will. I love how in Zechariah chapter 4, he, the Lord, also, when He's reassuring them that the, the temple is going to be complete, Zerubbabel is going to get this done, my spirit will see to it, and the response of the people that, you know, the, the last stone will go in place with shouts of grace, grace to it. All the people will be celebrating God's grace, right? And that's how, he's, that's how He does things. God's spirit gets it done, and all the people... Respond, I didn't do that. Grace did that. Father, Spirit, now the Son in verse 5. John adds to the greeting, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So we have Jesus as the faithful witness. Jesus faithfully and truthfully bore witness to God throughout His earthly ministry. Even when that pure witness would lead to him willingly sacrificing his life. But the cross did not end his witness, did it? He continues to stand as a faithful witness in his resurrection body. He is the firstborn from the dead, it says. The Old Testament expected a final resurrection at the end of time. Jesus' resurrection, guess what? It already started it. It already started the final resurrection. Episode 1 is Jesus rising. Episode 2 is all of the people that Jesus represents rising. Okay? As the firstborn, it's saying that he inaugurated that end time resurrection age. And as the firstborn... Think back to the Old Testament. That means he also received the inheritance of the new creation, of the new resurrection age. He's already got the inheritance. He's waiting for us to join him in it. And that victory over death then qualifies Jesus to stand as the ruler of kings on earth. Okay, the most corrupt rulers who think they can do anything they want... They have no power to defeat death. The most noble rulers who use their power for good, the kind of rulers we want to keep around, they also have no power over death. Death always terminates earthly rulers. But John celebrates Jesus as the sole ruler who conquered death itself. He entered death... But he entered death for us, for our sins. But it was impossible for the grave to hold Jesus because Jesus himself had no sin. And so God raises Jesus up and he sits Jesus at the highest place of honor. Jesus now rules from a glorified state that will never end. He rules with an absolute authority that leaves no earthly king beyond the bounds of his control. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to Jesus, the God-man. But there's more to this. Just like the titles given to the Father and to the Spirit both recall an Old Testament context, so do the titles given to Jesus. You will find all three of these titles in the lament of Psalm 89. Psalm 89, if you want to go there. Psalm 89, page 495, if you're using a pew Bible. Psalm 89 is, it's a great psalm. It's one that matches our own experience because it, it weaves together both song and sorrow. Both promise and pain. Both conviction that comes with crying. Psalm 89 begins with him singing. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord 
forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And then he talks in 2 through 4, he talks about how the steadfast love he's thinking about in particular is God's steadfast love to David, the promise and covenant that God made with David to establish David's throne forever. And then in verses 5 through 18, he, he starts reflecting on God's might and, and uniqueness. Right? Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Talks about him in, in verse 9, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise, you, you still them. So he calms the waters. Right? There's, there's no one like him. You have a mighty arm in verse 13. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. He's, he's their shield in verse 18. The, then, in verses 19 to 37, he returns again to God's covenant with David. And the way these two sections go together is, like, if God is this mighty to do all these things, then he can achieve his promise to David, right? So he starts reflecting on this promise. Verse 20, God anointed David, verse 20 says, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him, listen to it, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's our illusion. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm, and on it goes with God's promise to David and God's resolve to do it until verse 38. With verse 38, we move from song to sorrow. Or perhaps it would be better to say the song he was singing was one through sorrow. We realize that with verse 38 that everything that has been building to this point actually represents unfulfilled longings. The writer knows God keeps his promises but his daily experience is causing distress. Verse 38, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbor's You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. In other words, he knows God's promise. He's been reflecting on it. He knows God's strength. He's been reflecting on it. But in life, there is this tension... Things look like they're falling apart. Things look, feel like God's promises are failing and they're not going to come through. And so his cry goes up in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity have you created all the children of man? Meaning, I'm going to die before any of these things are fulfilled. What man can live and never see death? Like, come on, work here, Lord. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? According to John, God's steadfast love of old is found in Jesus Christ. 
For centuries, Psalm 89 has shaped the sorrows and the longings of God's people, but they find their answer in Jesus. He alone is the one who delivers from the power of Sheol. By raising Jesus from the dead and making him ruler of the kings on earth, God proved his covenant faithfulness to David. Jesus sits on the forever throne of David now, and here is what that means. When you are feeling the same sorrows and longings like the psalmist, when you know God's promises and you know his might, and yet you look at life square in the face and you see it fall, you see things falling apart, you feel like promises are not coming through, you feel like God has forgotten, and you feel like there's too much brokenness to put it all back together. And when you're asking questions like, is the sadness ever going to let up here? How long, O Lord, in that lament, we are called to rest assured that Jesus is on the throne as the faithful witness, as the one who rules the kings of the earth. That Jesus is inaugurating the new age, and the inauguration of that age means it's going to happen, right? It's already started with his resurrection. It's no accident that when John names the Trinity, he draws from Old Testament passages, all of which are talking about God's people in suffering. And God's people when they're discouraged, and God's people when they're tired, and when God's people when they're ready to give up. And God, the Trinity, meets us there, in the hard, to give us grace and peace. So the seven churches of Revelation are facing the hard. They are facing the messy. The problems within the church and the persecution from outside the church, John calls it tribulation. Tribulation characterizes this present age until Jesus returns. But it's in the tribulation that our God, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, comes and says to you, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Some final words as we close. One is that as Christians, we must confess the Trinity. We must confess the Trinity. The Trinity seeks to describe the way God reveals himself throughout Scripture. Scripture teaches us that God is one. Scripture also teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are identical with that one God. At the same time, Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct in their relations to one another. In the one God, there are a trinity of persons. When God the Trinity acts to save us, His acts are also Trinitarian. God's work to save is one work, but it involves a trinity of persons acting according to their relations within the Godhead some of which we have seen described today, even from the Old Testament. God saves us, but He does so as Father working through the Son by the Spirit. Not to confess the Trinity is to compromise God's testimony about Himself in Scripture. Verses 4 to 5 should strengthen our confession all the more. All of us who have followed Jesus' command in baptism identify with the Trinity right from the beginning of our Christian life. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But in Revelation chapter 1, what we have seen is that same triune God stays with us throughout the Christian life. No matter what we face as disciples, God the Trinity continues supplying His grace and peace, which also means that merely confessing the Trinity is not enough. Merely having it in our church documents is not enough. You adhering to the doctrine of the Trinity is not enough. From beginning to end, the Christian life is one of dependence on the Trinity. 
It's one thing to say, that's a chair. It's another to sit in the chair, right? And not comparing the Trinity to a chair. <laughs> just trying to give you an example of what it looks like to depend on it instead of just naming, naming the Trinity. In everything we commit ourselves to, we come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit, whatever trials we encounter. Our source for strength is the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Refuse to place your confidence in human sufficiency, human power, human politics, human resources. Can you discern the temptations of our day that are pulling us away from this dependence on the Trinity? Let's fill their lives with so many distractions. Let's make them always feel available to everyone all the time and feed them all the information possible at once and make them feel guilty for not responding on the second when that thing buzzes in their pocket such that folks are easily drawn away from sitting still in prayer and they can't finish a page of scripture without being distracted and drawn away. Let's put them in an affluent culture that's so good at meeting every felt need, at having an immediate comfort for nearly every problem, that they grow further and further from their desperation for the Lord. Or when simple faithfulness to Jesus doesn't seem to produce the results we want to see, let's just start doing things our own way. Let's start leaning on money and technology and attraction and the movers and the shakers so that we have more people coming. Let's, let's resort to the world's ways of mudslinging and political power plays and character assassination so that our tribe wins. Missionaries have sometimes told me of revival breaking out in an area. And they're sharing the story about revival. And somebody comes, what'd y'all do? What'd y'all do? And they just explain what happened. Come back to America, we're publishing books. Do this and there'll be revival. Use this method. Every church must use this method. And the missionary is scratching his head like, we didn't, we didn't cause this. The Spirit caused this. We were just faithful to plant the seed. The Spirit did this. You can't replicate it by selling books. We become so proud of our methods. We stop leaning on the Spirit. But the Lord says, not by my might, nor by not, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So refuse to place your confidence in human sufficiency. Remain faithful in all things and trust the Lord to act. Seek the Spirit's help and fullness. Throw your phone in a drawer and spend some time in prayer. And the Word, plead with the Father to glorify His Son through the Spirit's presence in your own life. Something Ben and I were talking about this past week is the various times in the New Testament where we're called not just to walk and step with the Spirit, but to be filled with the Spirit. Right? We've got to cry out and long for the Spirit's presence to be in our midst. Finally, expect the Trinity's grace for various trials. Expect the Trinity's grace for various trials. All three Old Testament passage, passages mention the struggle of God's people. But those struggles differed, didn't they? In Exodus 3, the people encounter slavery beneath evil tyrants. The text describes their struggle not only in terms of harsh labor, but also in terms of a broken spirit. In Zechariah 4... Foreign enemies still threaten and oppress, but we also see that there's these struggles that include unbelief and doubt and cynicism. 
Then in Psalm 89, the people experience unfulfilled longings. Great distress fills them over the seeming failure of God's promises. These are the various trials. But here's what I appreciate about that. The trials that we encounter in life may all look different, but it's the same God who delivers. The trials we encounter may differ, but our God's ability to save remains the same in all of them. No matter what we're walking through, the same God acts to deliver or to build, maybe to tear down, to fulfill, to strengthen, to humble. The grace God offers us, He tailors it to meet our specific needs in the various trials we face. We cannot think of the Trinity simply in terms of this abstract doctrine because the Trinity acts we have a, within a story. Within a, and he has a history, right? The Trinity's acts occur within a story that intersects with all of our stories and all of our longings in very specific ways if you just pay attention to the narrative. From persecution to parenting... From conflict in the workplace to cancer at home, from false teachers to a failing memory, whatever trial you might face, God the Trinity extends to you His grace and peace for it. He calls us to endure, but not without giving what we need to endure. So may His grace and peace be with you all this week. Father, we thank you that you are the God who gives grace and peace. We thank you that Jesus Christ stands risen from the dead and reigning as a faithful witness. Help us to keep looking to him, depending upon him. Help us abide in the vine and he in us that we might bear much fruit for a part. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Fill us with Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to know the fullness of God in our midst and in our lives. Pray that the Spirit would burn in this place. His presence with us would strengthen us for witness, boldness, would comfort us in our sorrows. We give you thanks, Father, through your Son and by the Spirit. Amen.